Welcome to Blue Medicine Journal, a Jungian podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Luz del Castillo, a Jungian mentor, ritual artist, and dreamer, coming to you from out of the blue. Today, we plunge into the wild blue yonder with Dr. Stephen Rowley, sharing from his recently published The Lost Coin, a memoir of adoption and destiny. Before we begin our interview, I asked Stephen to create a disfrasismo to describe himself in this moment. A disfrasismo is a stylized metaphor consisting of two nouns to mean a third as in flower plus song equals poetry. This linguistic style is from the Nahuatl language and was practiced by the ancient Aztec philosophers in pursuit of truth. I have adapted the disfrasismo as a tool for introducing ourselves beyond the page and through image. As Jung reminds us, image is psyche, which is another name for soul. That said, Stephen chose orphan plus searcher to equal mystery. Join us then for his mystery tour of his journey as an adoptee, a conversation about identity, the mother and child reunion, and the trauma trance, his words for describing an orphaned civilization cut off from the soul of the world. Stephen Rowley. I'm very excited to have you here today. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here too. Awesome. So Stephen Rowley is a psychotherapist. He practices on Bainbridge Island in Washington, which is a glorious neck of the woods. I, I found out recently that in my visit to Seattle that the Mount, Mount Rainier was formerly called Mount Tahoma. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which, which means the mother of all waters. Right. What a different all of, all of the mountain ranges have, all the mountains in the Cascades have their, are known in certain places as their their native, uh, the native tongue. Uh, Colchon uh, is Mount Baker and so forth. You go down, they all have the original names. And some of those are starting to change and, uh, in time. But uh, yeah, there's there's definitely, a, there, and there's, of course, where I live, the Suquamish uh, tribe is, is very prominent. And uh, we just named a, a local school uh, when our son went just about a quarter mile from here, uh, that the uh, Suquamish tribe gifted the school district with the name. The name is Hollitz. It's actually a it's a it's a marker at the very northeast uh, corner of the island. It was used as a kind of a navigational site. You know, you could see it from a distance. And they navigated from that. So, and they've all now that the pandemic over. Now they've used that also to restore the. Uh, I think it's a race. I think there's you know multi you know very large canoe kind of races, maybe twenty people, and that whole tradition has come back. So we're rich in that history, as well as and my own book talks about also the uh, the Japanese American tradition uh, here as well. Not as obviously not nearly as old as uh, the indigenous uh, uh, culture here. So 
That's wonderful. So, so uh, you know, an acknowledgement of the First Nation peoples there. I, I, I'm so thrilled that you shared that story with us as well. That just makes it even richer and, and, and takes us even deeper. So Stephen is the author of The Lost Coin, a memoir of adoption and destiny. It's on Chiron Publications. So besides being a psychotherapist, he's also an author. He previously enjoyed a 40-year career as an elementary school teacher and principal and a school district superintendent in Washington State and California. Where did you live in California? Uh, Bay Area, uh, when I was, uh, I, we lived in uh, corners of San Jose, Saratoga, Los Gatos, and of course I lived in and around uh, Stanford campus for, for four years as well. And I, I taught or was a pr principal in Redwood City, so the whole South Bay is like so a second you know, home. Well, you know, well, I did my undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and I love the Bay Area. It's so, so well, that's too, that, I'm so sad to hear that. <laughs> you know, the old <laughs> joke. <laughs> About Cal and Cal and Stanford, right? We were happy rivals. So oh, I, I just, do remember. I, no, it's hilarious because I remember the big game. You know, I, yeah. I um I remember I never watched football because it never made any sense to me, but I would go to the big game, first of all, because it was a big thing to do. But mostly that big game, the best thing that for me was always, you know, um uh halftime because the the I remember the Stanford band, marching band was stupendous they were they yeah. did the best show ever they yeah. i remember their 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 um you know their bowler hats and their vests and their their white shirts and black pants at the time i don't know what they use now but i remember they would just scatter on the field and in two seconds yeah. flat, they'd be in some amazing formation that would blow your mind yeah they've been they've been banned by some of the, the best universities in the country so they have you know that's they do stuff like uh uh, uh, sper many sperms running around trying to chase the egg. That would be one of their formations. Yeah, so <laughs> we could go on with that. We could talk about that a whole session. We, we I love that. So interesting. That. Yeah, but I mean, to me, uh, it's uh, <laughs> there. You have it. So the the, the bears and, and Stanford. What was you? Who was your mascot besides those wild band? <laughs> I love that band. The, the the tree is the mascot. Oh, the tree. Well, that's that's pretty. Now, good. Alto, the bear and the a, tree. I think we're good. I think we're good. Fear the tree. Okay. Oh man. Okay, so um, Stephen was also a professor at three universities, three universities, teaching educational administration and organizational theory. His academic academic background includes a BA from University of Wisconsin. He holds a PhD in admin and policy analysis from Stanford, and uh, and. Uh, School of Education and an MA in Counseling Psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute, my alma mater as well. That's right. right. Yeah, I was in the uh, DJA, the so Depth Psychology yeah, I know. I know you were. Uh -huh. Specialization in Jungian and Archetypal. Um, Steve's interests, which are woven into the book, include trauma, early childhood development, Zen and Tibetan Buddhism, archetypal astrology, and the ways in which fate and synchronicity shape our lives. Given his adoption background, perhaps it is no surprise that his wife and he adopted a boy at age four, 30 years ago. For today's podcast, it is important to know that Steve was born to an unwed mother at the Willows Maternity uh, Sanitarium in Kansas City in 1949. Known in its time as the Adoption Hub of America, he was adopted by his parents later that year from the American Home Finding Association. 
in Ottumwa. His adoption and lifelong search for his birth parents set the stage for his memoir, as his search was not just for his birth parents, but for his true identity. He states that this, his ultimate quest was to answer one question, who am I? The universal question, no? Yeah. That search started as a teenager, and I guess we will find out today how that search ended or how it continues. Right. <laughs> Better right. stated. Right. So, so let me let's start with this. This is one way of introducing you. So now we have your background and stuff. And what I want to do is 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 go back to to Carl Jung, and um, who said that psyche is image. And so I want to draw also from the ancient Aztec. Wiseman, the philosophers called Tlamitinime, who used metaphor and and in their in the Nahuatl language, and metaphor is is very strong right. in that language, and they used what were called disfrazismos, well by the Spaniards anyway, and which were two words or two word phrases to describe something else, and I'm going to give you an example of that first. They're nouns, right? So, so not a verb and, 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 and not an adjective or not a quality, but nouns, a name, a person, place, or thing. And um, they can be phrases. So two words they used were flower and song, and that meant poetry. So today, if you were to use two words to describe yourself or, or, or your book or, you know, take the license to, to have it be both, if you'd like, what two nouns or, or word phrases would you use to describe yourself? I think both myself as, as well as in the book itself is uh, orphan and, and searcher. Mm. So the orphan, both as metaphor and archetype is in there. You may have noticed the one of the uh, endorsements for my book comes from Audrey Punnett, who wrote this orphan, the search for wholeness. And, and the book itself is, is, is a search. And so I, I would say if, if I were to take those two together and put an equation sign and say, what does it come up to? I would say, as you'll see by the end, it actually comes up with mystery. I like it. That works. And the nature of mystery, I'll talk about maybe before uh, we're done. Uh, it's funny you would say that because I had a whole other version of, of, and maybe I will some other time, some other place. And actually, I just got through rereading again or listening again to Dick Russell's uh, Book on uh, Hillman, on James Hillman, the first volume. There's a new volume out, oh. but it it, it it made the point about this sort of the transition between uh, Jung's emphasis on image and Hillman kind of picking up and then expanding into archetypal uh, psychology and archetypal imagery. And I thought, you know, it would be easy enough with the idea of noun to actually or image, uh, almost one and the same, to actually tell the story only only an image, only in in, in and do it either either in the chronology of the book or almost randomly and almost as a test to say, how much can the images themselves tell the story? And I think actually there's a, it'd be a fun experiment. I think it'd be worth doing sometime when I'm not so busy to come up. But I think that's the kind of power that as you're, I think underneath what you're saying, the power of, of not only uh, noun and image, but uh, in the words you mentioned, I think uh, each of those have deep seated meanings in my book, Orphan and Searcher, that there is, there is, it, it introduces the idea of the poetic. There's a mythopoetic sensibility. And I, as you'll hear me talking a bit, that my book is written on two different levels. One's the literal level, the detective story I find in my, my um, birth parents, uh, but 
The other is the inner journey, which is exactly like uh, uh, Carl Jung did with memories, dreams, and reflection in developing a personal mishap, the inner, the inner work. So to do that, you really have to have, and you're invoking, you're, you're, you're required to have intuition. And I, a couple of things I'll mention later is a way of digging down below into the world of soul and all the other things, whether they're, as you mentioned, in indigenous cultures, um, I bring up, I will read a little bit uh, from both Zen and Tibetan Buddhism that come up and some other sources that, that actually help uh, not only illuminate, but I think uh, give that mythopoetic sensibility about what that inner journey, what that inner search is, can be best understood as. Lovely, lovely. So can I ask you, or shall I just wait for, for this presentation you're going to give us? The Lost Coin, it's such a lovely title, you know, and then your your subtitle, but The Lost Coin, that's an image right there. And and, and right. Jung also, you know, I mean, so image is psyche, but also the, the feeling tone associated. The Lost yeah. Coin, that's a packed image and a feeling tone. Right. I will, I'm going to save that to the end. I okay, have, save it to the end. Ex Wonderful. Explain. Okay. Okay, with that I, I said, do. please give us a presentation. Tell, tell, the, tell the listeners about your book. Um, okay. uh, again, um, the, uh, the Lost Coin, A Memoir of Adoption and Destiny. It's by Chiron okay. Publications. I, I will read some. I'm going to skip please. around a bit. And knowing this is a, a Jungian-oriented podcast, I do want to take at the end also to kind of highlight some of the other, the, I think the maybe they're hidden or very obvious or sort of Jungian elements that one can use to interpret the book or see the book through. Now, for other folks that have no Jungian background, that's not a problem at all. You can read it, as I said, on that one level. It's, an, it's, a, uh, it's a venture story. It's a, it's a search story. Uh, it's got plenty of stuff historically from the time when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. So, But I do want to mention also that um, as you, I would just listen to Sana Shandasani uh, this weekend talking about personal myth, and he used the very quote that I use in my book. And I think it's worth pointing out, given the, the orientation of this podcast, it's very short. This is from the prologue in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Thus it is now I have undertaken in my 83rd year to tell my personal myth. I can only make statements and only tell stories. Whether these stories are true is not the problem. The only question is whether they, what they tell is my fable and my truth. So I, as I thought often about that, as I said, I didn't Lovely I quote. It's one of my favorites, too. Yeah. yeah. And, and clearly, I don't think any person writing a, a kind of book like mine, not a research book and not a, a, a guide, a how to. I can't say I sat down to write a personal myth. Uh, but when I did in, in March of 2022, it was triggered by the discovery. It came to me through 23andMe about my birth father, his identity after 70 years of wanting to know who he was. And along with that came the knowledge of my new four half sisters. And uh, we exchanged information and pictures, and then suddenly it was really obvious. Uh, his picture and mine uh, were practically identical. So, um, but the real start uh, became for me when I was age 13. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read just a little bit of that. Please read. Go go for it. I'm, you okay. know, I, I love learning. Okay. I've been thinking more about my adoption and decided to take a chance and tell my mother what, what I wanted to know. We're standing in the kitchen while we're doing this. Where did I come from? Will I ever know? What can you tell me? Again, this is the voice of the orphan speaking. Mm. Suddenly, my mom my mom was growling like a tom, cornered tomcat. Blue fire shot from her eyes and scorched my face with the power of a lightning-fast punch. What's wrong with you, she hissed. What do you think you need to know? Don't you think your father and I love you enough? What kind of gratitude is this? You've got a lot of nerve. 
Her self-righteous indignation caught me completely off guard and her mission was accomplished. I shut up. I had no rejoinder, nothing to say in defense of my questions or my curiosity. I flushed with embarrassment and muttered something foul under my breath as I scurried up the stairs two at a time to my room where I slammed the door. From this moment of shame and humiliation at age 13, I became determined to discover my identity and set course on my own path, separate from my family and my hometown. I heard a call, a voice beckoning me to my future self. I had no choice but to accept my fate, however uncharted the road ahead would be. This newly born quest was as precious to me as life itself. So you also get the both the wanderer and the searcher in in the searcher in that. But that thing about the call, and I'll talk later about Campbell in a second, it was it was a call to my future self. Now, did I think that at that very moment? No, of course I didn't. But but again, within that that inner knowledge, that drive is in fact uh, is the impetus. And not every adoptee has that same drive, and some have no drive to discover. But for me, almost from the beginning, it seemed. This is I was destined destined to do this, and I think that's why writing the book at the time that I did, only in later life, like Jung, was so critically important to to thread together those many steps that brought me not only to the not the, the knowledge of of my second birth uh, uh, parent, but also what it brought with that kind of deeper understanding of myself and deeper understanding, as you mentioned earlier, about how. You know, we sometimes, sadly, I think, uh, uh, think that we're in charge of our own destinies in life and we make all the choices and decisions. That's, of course, is ego talking, and some of that's true. But a lot of it is, is shaped by forces of synchronicity and fate and, and other elements we don't seemingly have much control of at all. So that we think about in terms of individuation, we know it is not a straight line. It's not a, a linear process. It's up and down. It's chemical uh, uh, alchemical roller coaster, and so uh, it reminds me. Holding of, on, uh, it reminds me of the line from um, W. H. Auden. Right, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. Yeah, it. It to me, I, I just want to make a comment that at thirteen, I mean, I remember asking similar questions. I wasn't adopted, but similar questions. But when I was a little younger, you're really um, fortunate that you that the shaming didn't stop you in your tracks and instead it, it you know it, it it did just the opposite you know it, it set you forth there was something i think that i will you know in terms of what how the, the trauma of separation of mother and child which i make a big deal out of the book okay. that in front of that trauma some you know before memory in my case and i think actually i believe without any knowledge that actually being in living in an institutional world like i did 10 days and we're in the willows in another four months in a, in a, 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 a was a family boarding home of some kind uh, that being uh, 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 not imprisoned is too strong of a word, but being kept there on ice under observation may did and does make me wary of rules of bureaucracies of being told what to do. I, I still I bristle with the idea of white starch of white starch clothing. That's what the what's what the, all the, the nurses wore where I was. And by the way, I'm going to before I forget it, I'm going to be uh, with another uh, partner who's written about the Willows Maternity Sanitarium on my 75th birthday. I'm going to be speaking in Kansas City at the public library, only about a mile from the original site of uh, the Willows. So it's and there's a big community there. Of that. Oh, so anyway, fascinating uh, synchronicity. Speaking of which, huh? If you don't mind, I'm going to jump to, to kind of the, jump in, the most jump important in. part of the book. We'll Let's get to it. some of the series. Oh. oh, so you're going to read from the book right now? This is lovely. Yes, okay. Yes, yes okay. please, 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 please. So um, 
tell our readers what page this is you're reading from too. Well, I don't know at the moment. Listeners. I could it's it's okay, I no worries. What, no worries then. The, just the, read the chap the chapter is the mother and child reunion. And oh, I couldn't nice, read all of it anyway. It's nice. it's still I still cry when I read it, but I hear so that song too. The mother. I, I had I had I had searched. I had, I had, uh, stumbled through and sometimes gotten help from uh, different bureaucracies in my own adoption agency. I was finally given a name of my birth mother and where she lived, and it came completely by chance. And uh, I went to her hometown, not too far from where I grew up, and um, went to the public library. The school was closed, and found a couple yearbooks I thought she was a part of, and finally found her picture. And when I saw the picture of her, that was it. This was, that was the 16 year old me, female looking at myself. So I knew. Wow. So then through all kinds of things I won't go into, I, I found myself in a, a low, in a, a government sponsored housing that uh, was used to take women uh, who had sort of quote graduated from a halfway house. She struggled with drug addiction and, and alcoholism for years. She had been, she had been a, wandering the streets of a large uh, area, back, metropolitan area back east. So my half-sister I've only known for a little bit takes me to this dingy basement tenement in this uh, basement apartment of this tenement. And uh, so I give her the name of Peggy, but she says, uh, or Patty. She said, uh, she knocks on the door and um, uh, the door barely opens. She says, mom, this is Steve. He's here from California. Then I heard the words I was not remotely prepared for. Who the hell gave you the right to, 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 with my phone number and address? I didn't ask you to come. What gives you the right? Patty became unglued before my mind could register what I just heard. She gasped, Mom, what are you saying? How could you? Stop it. Let us in. As though nudged by an invisible hand, I took a half step toward her and spoke with a gentle and measured tone. Hello, Jean. I just wanted to, <clears throat> to introduce myself to you. It wasn't that somebody just gave me your address. Let's just say it took me some time to find you. Then I extended a, a box of long stemmed white roses to her. Here, these are for you. After a long pause, I heard her say with more resignation and a little edge of resentment, well, no one's ever given me flowers. Her words pierced my heart, but she adjusted without a fuss and ushered us into the kitchen. Once seated where I could collect my wits, I was struck about how much Jean and I looked alike, even though I was much taller and 20 years younger. Uh, she mentions that she has 500 books in storage with light bulbs go off. And then she remarked that there was a poster on the wall and she pointed to it and said, oh yes, well that was Kandinsky there at the National Gallery. And she launched into a uh, history speech about that period of Kandinsky's work. I simply could not believe what my senses told me were true. So I'm gonna indulge me just one, not two more paragraphs. No, I'm really our convers enjoying it. <laughs> our, our, convers our conversation soon, soon moved to politics in the defining moment of the day, probably my life. Although I'm not much of a joke teller, I told a joke about Ronald Reagan. It was quite funny. He was still in the running to be president. But in that moment, it was stupendously hilarious. And as Jean burst out in a roar at the punchline, her laugh was warm, smart, and deep from her belly. We had shared more than a political joke, a clever political joke. Her soul opened to me in that moment. I could hear myself in her laugh. I could see myself in her eyes. I could sense her mind working just as mine, just as mine did. I could feel the unmistakable embrace of our souls as our guardian angels wrap their wings about our shoulders and pull us together, uh, but not just in the moment. The 22-year-old young woman from Iowa and her infant son who were separated uh, long ago were now united, if only for a fleeting moment. I had found my mother and she had found her boy at last. 
my goodness. <laughs> I, I'm glad I have a box of tissue here. Jesus oh, Christ. I, I, so I, I go on to say the other, the other thing I asked her is I won't read all this. Issue. Go so ahead, please. I asked her, okay, as if I needed to drop more from her. I hesitantly queried a few minutes later in a round, very roundabout way. Had she thought about me much or at all of me on my birthday? She held my question like a sacred talisman in her palm, and I could sense her reverie. Every birthday of mine had been a lonesome ritual that only only uh, that only one another one other person on earth could appreciate. It was a question I need not ask. I watched the tell her tears well up, and with the most tender voice, she responded with self assured clarity. But yes, of course, I always think of you on February 10th and a lot of other days, too. I know you have a mother, a really good mother and father. Look at you, so handsome and so successful with Stanford and all. But you are you are my son, too. I never, ever forget that. This was the only thing I wanted to hear from her. I responded in kind with my tears, and I placed my hand on top of hers. Nothing more need be said. I spent the rest of the, after, the long afternoon, Jean, until we were worn out. Oh, wow. Oof. <laughs> Oof. what an amazing, you know, and I see that right now it, that I, I think it's uh, Paul Simon, right? The mother and, and, and yeah. the reunion. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's just yeah. that's the soundtrack here for that yeah. that piece there. It's so moving. It's so profound. And in that moment, let me ask you something, because one of the things that, you know, in, in in the research that I've done, when a when a child does not have the eye contact with the the parent, with the the mother, really, um, they become like an orphan. You know, if they don't have that, that's like right. the first mandala that they gaze into and in their sense of hold right. and identification. I mean, so it seemed like it was the laughter and 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 that joined you two together. You know, in that moment to 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 um, yeah. Un unforeseen it was like it was like a spock mind meld you know in star trek when spock puts his head, head on somebody and they, they oh right right one, right yeah get one another but it was just like that i mean it was happening so fast you can't be recording you know rational a little diary in your head it just sort of happened but yeah. but that union was unmistakable and she, her roommate at that time was a woman who was suffering from schizophrenia and we when i came back the next day to say goodbye um she introduced me as her son, which uh, took my breath away when she did. Wow. Oof, what a beautiful and yeah. moving story. Okay. Thank I'll, you so I'll much make you, for I'll, sharing that. I'll make, I'll, I'll make you cry one more time. Oh, my God. Uh, later that evening, this is when I'm leaving. Uh, later okay. that evening, we hugged as I stood to leave, but I can't remember much after that. I do recall that we held each other closely for a very long time. We both knew that uh, we might not ever see each other again. Before I opened the door, I brushed a few strands of her wig back and gently caressed and kissed her forehead with with total loving deliberation. When I was gone, and then I was gone, out the door, I kept my head down as I walked in the freezing evening air in a neighborhood I knew I would never visit again. So she, in fact, uh, not too much longer after that, passed away. And I think, and I was clear, we were both clear, when I came to see her, I did not have an agenda beyond seeing her. It wasn't like I was going to move into her life. It wasn't going to, you know, going to write a check. It wasn't we were going to write letters every day. It was just sort of understood. So that moment, uh, that connection was so powerful. I'm writing over, over my shoulder. I've, um, for a long time, certainly through the entirety of writing, I have a picture of her when she was 18, 19 years old. And uh, uh, she was cute as could be. Uh, looked kind of like the young Jean Tierney, if you remember that movie star back in the, course, back course, in the 40s. Yeah. But then 
But then, so you can contrast who she was then and the woman I met. Uh, also, in the book, there's a just when I discovered where she was, I wrote a letter to her and was intercepted by one of my half sisters saying, We're not sure she can come because she's had big time problems. And I, so my other, my half sister that's 11 months younger than me wrote me a letter. It's in the book. I kept everything over the years. I mean, everything. And uh, it's it's very telling. It's very sad. Uh, it's heartbreaking, really, because to say to, she told of her life and her other sister and her half brother what it was like uh, with their father, not my father. And uh, it was a tragic life that they that they led. And sort of like that. That's that's the life I didn't leave. And it was just graphic. I mean, I still feel connection to her and the other one. Uh, uh, Patty is no longer alive, but uh, uh, we're still in communication. But it was sort of like this is the hand of faith. This is the, you know by act of God or whatever you want to call it to not only have. Uh, been blessed with this life, but then I think, as I mentioned before, kind of in a, a la the, the hero's journey to bring back something. So the book itself is, I think, you know, from the perspective of, of Joseph Campbell, is it is part, it is the return. It's the gift, it's the hero's journey, and and it's the return And writing this book. I, I mentioned in the book also the, the contrast um, between uh, the hero's journey, oh, where am I? Oh, yeah. So uh, you probably are familiar with Robin Van, Van Loban Sells. It's uh, Donald Colshed's wife. She wrote uh, Shamanic Dimensions of Psychotherapy Healing Through the Symbolic Process. Here's the, here's her, here's the through line for her. So what I believe is this hero's journey I've been on, this hero's journey gives us a mythic paradigm for the birth of ego agency and ego consciousness. The shaman story gives us a mythic paradigm for discovery, loss, return and development of the human soul. And as I say, at least what I believe I've done both, I think I've been able to marry marry the two, but surely that soul's journey, and there is a twist, I won't give it away today, but there is a this, this uh, healing the rupture between my mother and me uh, on her 100th birthday, <laughs> uh, years later, has a major shamanic um, uh, event that happened with me, and I think it spilled into her. And we had a a marvelous reunion and a marvelous healing of that rupture with no words. Now you'll have to read it to find out. I'll tease you with that one, but it has that kind of that that essence of soul, that essence of destiny, this sort of closing loops of of, of restoring ruptures of other some other kind of deeper healing that I think um, beyond talking to one another and being nice to each other, all which is important in life. But also on that soul level, when uh, and a woman who I'd never seen cry in my whole life, when she broke down, when I showed up at her 100th birthday, and it was just again said the most. I didn't have to say what I knew, and she didn't have, to, and she didn't have to tell me that what she understood. So I'll leave it hang there for the moment with that kind of a, a little bit of a suspension of. Uh, so, so anyway, let that, me that, see if I understand this correctly. So first, first of all, how old were you when you first went to meet her? My birth mother? Yeah. Uh, 40. Okay. Okay. And so she she was in her late 50s. My, my she, was si- okay. she was 60. Yeah. But my real mother, maybe the woman I call my mother, who I grew uh-huh. up with, I mean, we had, you know, I mean, we were, you know, we weren't estranged. Uh, and she was enormously supportive and generous throughout my life. But there's always this little edge there. There's always this something. I think it goes back to that moment where she, uh, you denied telling me much more. And to this day, I don't know whether in some of the paperwork, I still don't know whether she actually knew my name, my my original name. And um, 
I, I suppose at this point it doesn't really matter, but I'll never know what they did or did not know. Um, or or if, even if they did, what the effect would be on me or any other case. I have other friends who are adopted from the same agency and uh, they don't have the same you know drive that I do. So, uh, but that's that kind of little detail that somehow sticks and stuck in my mind about when we did have this reunion, uh, that with my our emotional reunion, our soul to soul reunion with my mother, uh, uh, how important that was in the course of not just my life but hers. She was only a year away from dying at age of 101. So, 101. Um, <clears throat> wow. Yep. Yep. Wow, that's. So memory. you mentioned at the beginning, if you don't mind, I say uh, uh, so. They're woven these two: the outer, the outer journey, the inner journey together. But as I repeated, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, this I'm still driven by the one question: Who am I? Um, and I, in this, this, the sense of of not knowing, uh, of not knowing who you are, uh, of this, this idea of. Um, of uh, suspended animation, if you will. I, I use this, if you don't mind, I'm gonna read this. this. This quote is in the beginning of the book. And I think it's the, uh, it's it's not only present for my life, but I think in terms of psychotherapy, how often I use this with, with clients. It says, be patient with all that, this is a rookie. Be patient toward all that is unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you will not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And this is the state of it's a state of of, of not knowing. Um, and I, I go on to say in my comments today, uh, in my life and in relation to many clients, the state of not knowing requires an extraordinary amount of patience. This gets into the Jungian stuff. To my mind, this kind of enduring patience is a form of spiritual maturity. I believe unrelenting patience in life is a prerequisite for Jung's tension of the opposites mm -hmm. to manifest and allow the transcendent third to find us. It finds us and thus give rise to a new form of consciousness. I think my memoir demonstrates how the complexity and traumas of life demand attention elsewhere. I go through all the stuff growing up in the 60s and all of my professional life and education and on and on. Borrowing time, as it were, to allow uh, the long-sought understanding or numinous experience to finally arrive at our doorstep when least expected. And I think that's the kind of when we 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 can't go out and find these things. We have to, like the transcendent, it has to sort of come to us. And so that's a that's an important thing, I think, that I don't know if it relieves clients, but allows them to kind of have their their, their antenna up to what 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 else do I need to know that is, hasn't come my way yet. Well, you know, I, 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 it's such a moving story, Stephen, and to have, you know, to, to have grown up, I think also a baby boomer. I think, I think that we ask those kind of questions maybe you know, from early, early on. I think you know. Uh, I remember once standing in my backyard. We had a lovely backyard full of fruit trees and, you know, apricots and a giant walnut tree with a tree swing and a yeah. um, plums. And I remember standing in the back. I was nine standing in the backyard once and just sort of, you know, I, I would often lay under the walnut tree and just sort of look up at <laughs> look up at the 
between the branches and and try to you know sort of find that the space between the branches what the patterns were and uh, you know it was sort of like a far out thing to be doing but it was it's sort of it was how I remember spending like Sunday afternoons just being entranced like that and coming from that state and, and then just looking at the trees and realizing at that point that same question is who am I when I felt like I was a part, not just of this, I was more than this skin encapsulated, uh, you know, ego as, as, as Alan Watts would, would call it, yeah. that I was part of, that there was a part of me that was all part of all of this. And, and I, I trying to figure that out. And I remember my older sister, she was a couple of years older and she was like the family uh, stand-up comedian. <laughs> she was the wrong person to ask, you know, because I remember asking you and saying, you know, I know that I'm me, but I'm more than just me. It's, you know, who, who is just me? And she was going, yeah. what? You know, hey, listen to this. No. You know, it was a great source of uh, comedy for my sisters at that point on. But you know, because it is a that's a real question, you know, and 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 it's it's not one that just comes, you know, from from being you know orphaned so much as I think it, you know, it's just sort of like, well, I mean, you know, what are we and 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 how do we hold that tension of offices through life, you know, the not knowing and allowing this. Transcendent function. Well, maybe us. if I go ahead and finish a little that I had written here, and I'll get into right. the, the, the Zen Cohen. But I do want to mention I was in New York City last week and uh, for a wedding, and uh, my wife and I went to MoMA, and uh, there was a huge Jackson Pollock. I mean, I, I don't know how many. It was gigantic, a big bench, and it was the same thing of like when you can be that close to it, you know, in three three days, so to speak, and see the oils and so forth, and it looked as though. At times I thought I'd feel like I was an airplane looking down at Earth, and other times I saw a brain, you know, all the stuff. These things, it's just too big to take in. It's too, it's too much. And yet you have this sort of almost almost sensory overload with and those kind of that resonance, those questions, the smallness we feel. Okay. Uh let me finish up. So, at least on my end. Um, aside from Jungian dynamics, which I mentioned some of, was also the wisdom of the Yi Ching and the form. And, and from various Buddhist teachers and writings that I came that led me to a deeper understanding. I write with some detail about those encounters, including how I experienced synchronicity through the I Ching and, and reconnected with Carl Jung. I was three weeks from being done with my first draft when I realized I didn't know how to end the book. By sheer synchronicity, I looked at one of my many quotes taped to my computer and found a well-known Zen koan. The koan is a kind of puzzle, but not one isn't meant to be solved. Rather, the koan is a puzzle of sorts that enables the mind to discover itself, requiring a new way of thinking, of departing from rational thought, and learning a new way of seeing, bridging rationality with intuition and a higher form of consciousness. So here's the koan. Uh, the coin, this is the last page or so of the book. The coin, so, I like uh, it. The lost coin, the lost coin, <laughs> you'd think I could get it straight by now. <laughs> <laughs> The coin lost in the river is found in the river. It took a while to realize what this what meaning this had for me, but ultimately I ended the book with this. The coin lost in the river is found in the river. And by the way, when these were given to uh, priests in the making, they, uh, they'll they get one koan a month for two years. So you're supposed to stay with this one for two months, for a month. The coin lost in the river is found in the river. The meaning of life that there is one Maybe like a coin that is lost in clear river water, but due to the distortion or fraction of life, it may not be where we think it should be. And in searching in the murky waters of life, it may be nearly impossible to discern. 
Sometimes all we can do is fumble blindly in the dark. Like all Cohen's, my story is incomplete and it has an uncertain ending. After writing the ups and downs, the joys and challenges of the chapters of my life, I've lost my fondness for certainty. It inhibits curiosity and dampens the capacity to hold the mystery of it all. If there's any meaning to be found in life, I believe it's in the searching, not in the finding. There we go, it's searching. I believe it's in searching, not the finding. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think after all these years, I've found myself. And other times I'm less sure. I do know one, I do know one thing though. I've always been a lucky boy, but I don't know why. I'm more content that way, not knowing. What would, what would life be anyway without us mysteries slipping through our fingers like coins in a river, lost and found again and again? Lovely. Would you read that one more time? That just that ending is just absolutely exquisite. Sometimes I think that after all the years I have found myself, at other times I'm less sure. I do know one thing, though. I've always been a lucky boy. That's a theme through the book is lucky boy. But I still don't know why. I'm more content that way not knowing. What would life be anyway? without its mysteries slipping through our fingers like coins in a river, lost and found again and again. And for me, I can only speak for myself, but I think it's true for many other people. Once we dig far enough and deep enough, and as we said from the beginning, kind of go through archeology, span kind of go down through the layers from outside life deep into soul. The deeper we get, I think the less certain it becomes, the more mysterious it comes. To me, it has that resonance, that kind of, it, it, it evokes in me, as we mentioned before, what some really powerful poetry can do to us in terms of opening our sensibilities. There's, there's a section here about a meeting I had with um, Jane Hirschfield, who obviously live in, in Berkeley, and uh, um, I, I quote one of her one of hers in there. Um, and I think that's that it's that sense of wonder, and maybe like you're saying before about that sense of smallness, or you know, I, you can't get your head around, you can't get your arms; it's too big. And I think that's the uh, that's the uh, the beauty of it. I'm gonna, I, if you don't mind, uh, we have time for me to read one. Read one please, of, read please, one please, please, read, read, read. Okay, I'm gonna read the the, the poem that be, maybe this is a good way. That's far as my end. Uh, that I begin with a poem by William Stafford, who is one of my favorite poets. He was the poet laureate of Oregon one time, and I, this one has been with me for a long time. A story that could be true. You see how this applies to me. This will, yeah, this will apply to those two two nouns. If you're exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world, your father is lost and needs you, but you're far away. He could never find how true you are, how ready. When the great winds come <clears throat> and the robberies of the rain, you stand on the corner shivering. The people who go by, you wonder if they're calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give back, no matter how dark and cold the world is around you, maybe I'm a king. Mm -hmm. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, one more time. I always think poems need to, <coughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Me, poetry is medicine, and I just feel like it. We need it. We need it. Uh, we need it a second time. All right. And and I'm, I'm, as I say this, I, I'm going to say sometimes working with any kind of client, and certainly with younger clients. It's as though this poem sort of lacking when you've got somebody who's been battered down by life and whatever, and you go in and want to really see the, the potential, find the, find the self, find the hidden child, find the splintered part that it is a consequence of trauma that's still in there. A story that could be true. If you're exchanged in the cradle 
and your real mother died without ever telling this story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world, your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. He can never find how true you are, how ready. When the great wind comes and the robberies of the rain, you stand in the corner shivering. The people who go by, you wonder if they're calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world is around you, maybe I'm a king. Who are you really, wanderer? Maybe I'm a king. That's quite lovely. That's really... Yeah, there's a, there's a, a, just a, let's see, where is it? Just a, from Vasho. Um, it's just hanging there at the back of the book. From the, high, the Japanese haiku poet. Okay, please. The moon and the, <laughs> I the love moon it. And, the moon and the, and the sun are travelers, a hundred generations. The years coming and going are wanderers too. Spending a lifetime adrift on boat docks, greeting old age while holding a horse by the mouth. For such a person, each day is a journey, and the journey itself becomes a home. Beautiful, huh? Mm, 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 mm. The journey itself becomes a home. I think that's such an interesting notion, especially when, when we think about um, trauma. I, I was in Seattle, I was at um, a conference, uh, the Institute for um, Conflict, uh, with um, Dr. Lahab Al Said and his, the JAMP University. Now, he, he, he's been a psychotherapist for 25 some odd years, and he, he mentioned in terms of trauma that something that really struck me and that, that we lose our sense of home when we're traumatized as children. We are, we are in a state of dissociation. Yes. And I think and when we say, and as we've learned, I think from others, including think of Thomas More, that the, when we say we lost home, we're saying the, the synonym is soul. We've lost soul. Mm, 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 mm. And I think about that in terms of um, us as a collective, you know, in, in the U.S. where there's so much homelessness. It's. I mean, it, it. It really does speak volumes. It, you know, when we look at when we consider that. You know how Jung talked about our, you know, our the gods coming back as our diseases. Yeah. You know? And th there we have to look at that um, as a, a symptom of our of our, you know, psyche as a country. You know the 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 phenomenon. Yeah, I think I think in in early childhood trauma, including developmental trauma. Uh, I'm looking for where I wrote it here, but I'll just I'll just paraphrase. Um, it's uh, I'll just read a little bit of this. It's, it's important to recognize that not all adoptees are as driven as me to discover our past. In some cases, the birth parent may have a good reason for not wanting to be found. For many of us, the ongoing state of not knowing is its own form of purgatory and can chronically unsettle us and make us restless in life and love. Uh, I can't find exactly what I was looking for. Anyway, this, this idea that I think not only in terms of the kind of trauma I'm talking about, separation of mother, but this what the consequence of, of uh, the imprint of trauma on the soul, on the psyche, before memory, is that we, and in terms of our dissociation, we this is chapter and verse out of Donald Kalshad, we either end up in, in a, dissoci a dissociated state of depression, withdrawal, want to keep the world away, on the other side of that, it's aggression, fighting, anger. 
Uh, they're just different expressions of the same form of dissociation. And that dissociation, I think, I would claim, at least in some, uh, creates a sen sense of trying to find home, of trying to find connection. So what we're left with in place of, uh, for adoptees, I think, is a sense of yearning, of wanting to connect, but never quite getting there. Restlessness of love, restlessness in jobs, moving a lot, never quite finding a place to, to find home. It's sort of like uh, um, uh, uh, Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. How does it feel to be a complete unknown? No direction home, like a rolling stone. That's us. That's that's the adoptee's theme song, I, I would argue. But I think it applies to others who, particularly in real childhood, have experienced different levels of either real, I mean, uh, real, I mean, developmental trauma or sexual or physical or emotional trauma or neglect I we're, agree, we're, our, our, our psyches are shattered and those parts according to trauma certainly or uh, call shed i certainly as a Jungian, i certainly believe it they become splintered i mentioned in my book about when we adopted our son it's a great link it's another great chapter about finding the boy and myself at the same time i could see him when he when we first met him we knew a little his mother just been killed in a car accident and his father was far away and on the other side of the world and was not coming back. Uh, I could sense in him. It's as though I was like Superman with x-ray vision. I could see that. I could feel that splintered part of him. Like, And I think I like it. The metaphor in the book is like, like a miner trapped in a mine shaft. Down there, deep down. And so uh, then the question is, how do we begin, whether as a parent or a therapist, how do we begin to... Um, I hesitate to use the word rescue, but how to help uh, lower the barrier, how to help revive that splintered part, how to let that splintered part come back and reintegrate. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of tricks in the trade and not all of them work all the time. Fate intervenes sometimes for better or worse. But it's that sense of, of when we think about homelessness, uh, addiction, uh, other kinds of trauma that people are carrying around with them. Even things like uh, having horrible uh, birth experiences with the mother has in trauma. I have a client right now who um, uh, she was five when she, her mother was five months uh, pregnant with her, tried to kill herself. So tell me that doesn't it has an effect. I mean, and she's yeah. had some of these very same kind of problems. So um, that's, yeah, I think, like, why the why yeah. why why depth psychology and depth psychotherapy or analysis understands that framework it gives you a diff, another a deeper sense a more three-dimensional look at at uh at not just the person but sometimes i'll call the higher self of the soul that's behind all that or within that person that has yet to to find its way out it's or its way out of the dark night of the soul in that case it is plan, it's, so. it's it's sort of recognition and honoring of the soul it is you know, one of the things yeah. that um, both Jung and, and, and Hillman emphasized was that they return psyche or soul, you know, to, to psychology, psyche and logos, the language of the soul, you know, right. so finding that working with soul medicine is, is how I look at it. Yeah. Hillman said that the soul is born in beauty. It feeds on beauty. It needs beauty for its existence, which in our corporate fantasy has been commercialized uh, made pornography any sense of beauty capitalized just like anything but to find beauty whether it's in poetry whether it's in nature whether it's in 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 art i think that is essential to the path towards healing because it, what is what is it doing it's nurturing soul
And, you know, using that same uh, kind of holding that thought, that's why I think the phrase that uh, uh, I think came out of Tibetan Buddhism, I'm sure it probably came some other place I'm unaware of, but that's the idea of the, of the hungry ghost. Yeah. And so in a place where we are starving for soul, not just in this country, not out on the streets, I mean, it can be in the corporate boardroom or out, out in a tent on the sidewalk. So many are hungry, they're hungry ghosts, they're ravenous. What more? More drugs, more alcohol, more this, more that, all those things that, that have those addictive qualities that still leave us, uh, you know, out in the cold. And that and that becomes, I think, as a that right now in this, this world and it's uh, is that that hunger, that uh, deficit, that soul deficit is so obvious. It's so painful. I mean, the whole collective is a state of not only shock, but I think arguably big sections are a state of trance. You know what they call trauma trance. It's you know we're all walking around believing things that aren't really real and and hoping for something that'll never come. And well, you know, I think that you 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 really touched on something there because as a collective, I'm going to say since probably the Cartesian, we we lost our 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 enchanted and ensouled worldview, the anima mundi, the 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 you know the soul of the world in which. The entire earth and cosmos is ensouled and intelligent and communicative and being cut off from that. We as a collective were orphaned, you know, right. floating in, think, you know, in a meaningless, so-called meaningless universe. You know, yeah, we, yeah. It, it, in, it was an important stage in, 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 you know, human understanding, but it also um, was co-opted and, you know, swung us from one end of being under the dominion of the church and them claiming all knowledge and 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 then swinging to the other end to a science that became reductive and in turn served uh, the industrial revolution. Right. And, and, and so, you know, which basically has led us on this death march where nothing is ensouled and everything is meaningless. And it's, it, it is. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating thing because as we, you know, come back into the notion of an ensouled world, which Jung reintroduced the anima mundi, you know, which we know from from Plato recognized the world soul, and and by reintroducing that, it, it's a form of reenchantment, and it, it helps. Let's say, the hungry ghost. It helps us recognize where do we find medicine for the hungry ghost, you know, for our hungry ghosts, and right. And I, I think it's incumbent, I think, for, for those of us who are teachers and uh, and uh, therapists, and I'm sure others, uh, is what this whole, what we're talking about, is to not let this become the predicate for a victim story. Yeah. Or we're lost without any uh, uh, any way home. There's no no, no light. Well, that's uh, it, because it delegitimizes the suffering, doesn't it? Right. When right. we become victims, it's it's over. There's no, there's no meaning to the suffering. There's no... Yeah you know, journey within it yeah, you know, that yeah. leads us to something that is meaningful, soulful, a reclaiming, you know. Right. I use with, with clients, and I put it in the book, uh, in the Soul's Code, Hillman's Soul's Code, he talks about Plato in, out of, in the Republic and the myth of Ur, yes. which is that what if we had, and I say this as a client's example, I'm going to tell you something I want you to just hold in imagination. Don't, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. Just imagine for a moment. So imagine this predicament: uh, your ex, your ex-wife is is trying to sue the pants off you, take every nickel you've ever had. Your children don't speak to you. You just got cancer, and your dog just got hit hit run over by a truck. 
That's a big effing bummer, right? I mean, you know, you are life's victim. And and so there's a lot of pissing and moan about, oh, God, life's terrible. It sucks. I can't put up with it anymore. And then the question then becomes, well, what if? What if you had constructed all this? What if you had designed this all, you know, ex-wife and the children and your job and all this stuff? To what end? So even globally, to what end? To what do we take to learn from? Does this kind of calamitous trauma on a global scale, uh, what does this, what is this intended ultimately to teach us? I talk in my book about losing my career. I was a superintendent in, in uh, well, Apple Computer was the heart of my school district. And I went through, I detailed the spectacular fall, a publicly humiliating uh, uh, indecency that not only got fired from, but uh, took every penny I had away. And I, I basically could never really, I was broke, fat, I was one of the highest paid executives in Silicon Valley and or public, uh, public uh, uh, executives. And uh, it's a long story, you have to read the book to find out. But anyway, uh, and, you know, it, it took a lot to take me down. <laughs> I spent two years in my own sort of purgatory, what I, I used to call my chop wood carry water days. And it was like, it, it just it just stripped my ego off in strips and it was painful. And I thought, I can't be that attached. I, I thought I was, I thought I was a little bit bigger than this. I thought I wouldn't, I could take a hit. And uh, this was a big enough one that took me down. And so ultimately, not at the moment, ultimately, this I learned and allowed it to become the great teacher, which is what the Dalai Lama talks about all the time, is that your adversary is your greatest teacher. So I think that's one of those things. That's where we get into the mystery part. In what ways do the things that are, are lining up that are so bad for us, or we feel so victimized by, actually have the seeds of, of our own enlightenment, our own understanding, built into them how do we discover those david white's book the well of grief is a marvel very short marvelous poem that helps us think about going down into the well reaching for the the, the coins that have been lost you know the coins that have been lost there i've heard others say other therapists say that when we reach into the ooze to find those if we get stuck that's addiction but if we're lucky and stay with it as i make the point about patient enough we find those in the dark you know find those in the dark in the dark night of our soul then we've then we've made something of the tragedy we've made something that would otherwise victimize victimize us i heard a i was in a training one time where we were asked to pair off and tell our partner our worst victim story and we all had doozies oh i was victimized by this victimized by that and, uh, the, the leaders called on the woman who they'd overheard and she got up and told a story which got everybody jumping for the kleenex about how uh, she was in a, a small apartment with her baby in a small bed next to her and a, a, a guy crept in the window with a huge knife, put it to her throat and said, I'm going to rape you and you're going to keep your mouth shut. Don't make a sound. I'm going to have so many words. I'm going to do what I want to do with you. And he did. Horrible story. I mean, just God awful. Everyone's crying. It's terrible. And then the leader got up and said to her, he said, okay, I want you to tell the same story, but I'm getting, instead of the, how I got raped story. Now I want you to tell this story. Tell, tell us a story about how you saved your child's life. Wow, huge change. You know, that that twist and that turn about how that changes. Hollis talks a lot about this in terms of the healing process. Is, is again and again, kind of like the end of my book, the mysteries again and again. How we begin to twist narrative, find and reshape over time a story that's something close to the truth, but has some of those gems of self understanding eventually have their way their way through 
And we begin to see the world different. We elevate our own, we get out of the pit of our own victimization and how bad am I? How, you know, and suddenly I, we begin to see the life differently. I think that Jung did the same thing when he recognized this moment in, in history as a Kairos moment, you know, mm-hmm. which is the Greek word for a an opportune moment. Mm-hmm. This was, I think he was in the 80s. It was like in the 1960s or something when he, he, he perceived this universal mood of renewal and destruction. Mm-hmm. And he, he recognized that we could destroy ourselves. Humanity could destroy ourselves with the might of our, our technology and science, which in the, the hands of the of the wrong people will, you know, I mean, we've done a pretty good job of destroying so much around us. The earth right now and our sixth grade extinction and plagues and uh, fires and crashing and burning and flooding. And so to recognize this Kairos moment, as, as Jung said, so much is at stake and so much depends on the psychological constitution of of, of humanity so if we look at this, you know, he said it was an ideal moment for a metamorphosis of the gods, which is a mythopoetic way of saying a, a new worldview, right? A, a change of the fundamental principles and symbols that define our era. Joanna Macy, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but you probably are, um, yeah. Buddhist scholar and activist now 94 or something. She says, we cannot give birth to what we have not first cherished in our hearts. So if we understand peace, like our dictionaries define it, as the absence of war, then it's not likely we'll ever have it. You know, what does it look like? Uh, what does it feel like? What, what you know, what is good governance? What is a, a, a new world look like? A brave, just, kind, green new world where every life is respected. You know, what is sacred geometry of the ancients? How do we live in harmony with the animals and, and plant life around us? How do we learn from nature, biomimicry? So much is going on as we, you know, as the world, as we have known it, comes to its end. And if we gather from ancient um, mythologies, the Aztec uh, legend of the five suns, S-U-N-S, speaks about the different cosmogonic eras of evolution and life. And when each one of those came into existence, its end was predicted. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that kind of wisdom, as one world ends, how do we imagine a new one into being? We know from from uh, the French philosopher and Islamic scholar Henri Corbin that the seat of imagination is the heart. So again, there's the images arising from the heart. We know from Einstein that imagination is more important than knowledge. And, and from Martin Ruland, the 14th century alchemist, that the imagination is the, the star, the celestial star in man. And from Paracelsus, it's the sun in man, right? Imagination. So, so much, again, depends on the psychological constitution, as well as our imagination, the images arising from our hearts, how we use those and, and, and to lead forth with that. And that requires not just courage, but circles, tribes, right. people right. working towards that, you know, towards similar ends, finding that niche, right. finding your group, finding the way to do it, finding the way to bring it to life. To me, when you begin to work with the orphan archetype, you're you're working not just, you know, finding that lost coin, uh, you know, at the bottom of the river, but you're also allowing others 
that were, whether they were orphaned or not, to find that coin as well, to grasp that coin, to even know that it's a journey, you know, because right. Right. that orphan is collective. It's, it's, it's so much beyond, you know, whether we were traumatized and lost our, you know, lost our home along the way, but to recognize, like you said, the journey is the home. That's a beautiful piece of yeah. wisdom. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Just as you say that, it just may, may think uh, what comes in, uh, not directly this way, but uh, uh, in uh, Richard Tarnas's uh, Cosmos and Psyche, uh, another level of takeaway for me is, and as you're saying it as well, this sort of awful oscillation between lightness and dark that's in, in the human psyche and it's in, in the nature of this, probably even the, of the earth itself. This earth is never going to be here forever. It's gonna it's gonna disintegrate at some time, and I just happened to see a, an animation, an animated uh, a picture of uh, when the uh, the great uh, meteor hit in uh, the Yucatan and destroyed all life forms, you know, above three feet and most of plant life, and what it looked like, how and how ten years of complete darkness around the earth, ten years of darkness. You know, I saw something similar. And, what did you see that on? It was on. Uh, it's on. I think it was on Nova. Oh, okay, interesting. It's a Nova. Wow. It's an ancient something. It's a ser- the series is ancient man, ancient something. It was the fourth one, I think. But I've read about it. I've read it also. It's another topic for another day. Why, why in terms of uh, Lisa Randall, uh, MIT, the physicist, uh, uh, wrote about this at some length, about the oscillation of the, of the, um, of the, uh, the Milky Way, like a plate. It's, it's hit the ground and kind of goes boing, 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 goes back and forth. And during those open times, it allows other meteors to come in and hit places like Earth. Anyway, it's another story. But yeah, but it makes you think, though, that, that and maybe within us, that we all have those moments of dark and light. And uh, and it's it, maybe that's just human nature itself. And maybe it's our collective fate that we do have to go through this. One thing in my book I have about how growing up in our home had a had a, a, Japanese, a, a small porcelain Japanese doll and a small, small Japanese Bible on, on, on uh, sides of which looked like toasted marshmallows. My dad picked those up after he was in the Navy, and uh, we were pretty sure it was about a month or so after the bomb in Hiroshima. He brought some guns and knives back. He brought those two things. They just sat there, just sat there. And yet you know, there's another theme written through the book about uh, Japan uh, my meeting, my uh, revelation with reading I Ching and discovering Jung, and I had the same toss, the same uh, number fifty, the cauldron, the first each the first time, and it was in Robert Oppenheimer's old house. What? <laughs> in Boulder, and uh, and then here on Bainbridge, one of the things that when I came here and was the challenge and opportunity was to help build a new school, and we named it after uh, the Sakai family, uh, which was a. That was a monumental, monumentally positive affirmation of the history of the island and and, and my role in that. And there was, um, I'm not kidding, you can't make this stuff up. If that's a, You just think, what was it about Japan and me, those dolls, my dad in Hiroshima? I met, I knew the, the, the family and the older, the, the grandson, who was probably in his late 50s now. And I told him that story. I said, something tells me I was meant to come here and do this. Those, those dolls didn't sit there for nothing. My dad died quite young at the age 60 uh, from ALS, could have been from the, from, you know, nuclear, you know, dust. Anyway. Absolutely. So. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Tarnas and he talks about this time in history as a, as a collective rite of passage. And as a 
basically uninitiated civilization, culture, Western culture, anyway, uninitiated, because a rite of passage is archetypal, it spirals back around. And and so we're experiencing it as a collective. I mean, that's one way of of viewing it, you know, in a mythopoetic understanding. And, And while death is inevitable in a rite of passage, and new life is what's the aim, it's not guaranteed but that's what makes it a real rite of passage and this is you know this this rite of passage that we're undergoing it does call all of us into motion into a a movement to reimagine you know to leave with our hearts with the images arising from our hearts you know and and to to reconnect with the world's soul and, and and to move like i say you know your work it, with the orphan archetype, I mean that that sort of allows us to reconnect with that larger ensouled and oh, absolutely world that we've been separated from. And you know, I I don't know if you've ever seen that, and we'll be wrapping this up. But um, I didn't read it, and I should read it because I, I I the movie didn't get great reviews or anything, but I really loved it because it's called the Golden Compass, and yeah. I, I, Rings a bell. I think yeah. maybe I've seen it. Um, you know, it's I. I the storyline is wonderful, and Nicole Kidman and uh, Daniel Craig, and um, yeah, you know, it's it's um, it's well acted, and I I feel like the the storyline is where the children, you know, there's a world order, and the children all have. They're animals, you know, they're pets that are not just, they're not dogs or they're all kinds of different pets, but they're pets with their souls. And the world order is trying to cut the soul from the the child. And Mm -hmm. and it's such a poignant, you know, they're trying to formulate a, you know, sort of a machine that will separate the child from its soul animal. And yeah, it's, I remember it's a, that, yeah. right. It's a painful, but to me, I feel like in a way that that's what sort of happened to us as a collective. You know, we were cut off, you know, from the soul of the world, and that that did orphan us. You know, that that's like it, it created a that that hungry ghost where we're always looking for, you know, yeah, to fill. Yeah. Oh, I have my doorbell's ringing. Hang on, just a second. This is probably okay. the gas man. Hang on, okay. and then I guess we'll wrap it up. Hang on. Hi, good morning. Uh, yes, good morning. It's right here. I'm just going to finish up this uh, podcast, so okay. go right ahead. Thank you. All right, Stephen, this has been a lovely conversation, and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time um, Absolutely. To, to converse with me, to bring your sure. beautiful book once again, The Lost Coin, A Memoir of Adoption and Destiny. It's Chiron Publications by Stephen Rowley. Rowley. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks so much for joining us today. Until next time, stay curious and feed your soul.